So last week we started a series called Unstuck. The premise is we all get stuck sometimes. Even those of us who follow Jesus Christ and have the scriptures as a guide and live in community, we can get in a stuck spot. Now, being stuck doesn't mean you're in sin. It can mean that. Um, and uh, I'll tell you what, if you're in sin, you will get stuck, right? The wages of sin is death. Uh, a man plans his way and he gets into all kinds of things. If you're stuck because of sin, uh, the Lord is gentle about bringing that out and then there's confession and there's beauty. So we need to reason with God. But, but more naturally, I think what happens is we get stuck for other reasons. This is a long and winding journey following Christ. It really is. And there's going to be ups and downs and highs and lows. You're going to wind up in places you never thought you would be. And sometimes you will get stuck. The seasons of life bring this out, right? Uh, poet Ed Seisman said, men past 40 get up nights, look out at city lights, and wonder why life is so long and where they made the wrong turn, right? Uh, sometimes people head to midlife and they get stuck and they wonder what's going on. Millennials get stuck. I went through this last time. Uh, we all get to these stuck spots, as Carlos said, in family and finances and with God and church and, and all these different things. And so what we're trying to do in 2019 is identified and get unstuck. Now, you won't get unstuck today or tomorrow or next week. You may. Uh, my guess is it'll be a journey. My journey uh, of being unstuck took two years. I don't think it should take that long. But the one thing we need to understand is that there is God who has great things for us. He really does. So what I want to talk to you today is I want to talk about unstuck in your work. And I want to tell you, I feel like a mosquito on a nude beach. Let that imagery kind of get in your mind. I actually was on a new beach this summer. Uh, Monica and I went to Martha's Vineyard. I said, let's take a walk. Uh, about a quarter mile in, I said, don't look to the left or right. It's a bad sight. Uh, had never been on a new beach before. It is not pleasant. Uh, there's a reason why God made Adam and Eve clothing. They, they probably were awesome looking uh, before the fall, but, but we need clothes for sure. Uh, there's so many ways I can go. Uh, I've lived a lot of this out, I've read, I've observed, uh, it's kind of a sweet spot for me. Uh, but unstuck in your work, I chose the word work strategically. This is not unstuck in your career, your job, or the fancy word we like to throw around your vocation. I use the word work because work is a biblical word. In fact, if anyone should corner the market on work, it should be believers, because God is a worker. Uh, Jesus said, my father and I work until now. The time is coming when no one can work. God is a gardener. God is a creator. In the early pages of Genesis, we see God creating the world in six days. Hebrews 11.3 says, we understand by faith. Okay? It's we that need the understanding by faith that God created everything we see out of, everything, of nothing. Right? Ex nihilo, the Latin term. And God is the only one that can do that, Right? So what God does in verse 26 is he creates human beings in his image and likeness. He endows them with gifts and talents so that we might take what God has given us and make something great of it. That's where the word culture comes from. It comes from horticulture, where you take all these ingredients and you make something beautiful. So, so work is from the beginning. Work is before the fall. God left some things undone. Adam had to till the ground, he had to name the animals, even after the fall, uh, even though it would be the sweat of your brow and there would be thorns and thistles, work was still a great thing. Proverbs talks about it, it's all through scripture. And then we get to Jesus, right? He is the express image of God, God in the flesh, and Jesus becomes a carpenter, and then an itinerant rabbi. Uh, 
You need to understand, in world religions, uh, menial work was beneath the gods. Okay, the gods were above all this. In Greek thought, the material was always uh, evil and the spiritual was always what you were attaining for. So the idea that our God would be a worker uh, is not found in any other religion in the world. The crowning verse in the New Testament for you and me is Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, right? Whatever you do, whatever your work is, uh, do it with all your heart. Here's why. Because you don't want to be men pleasers. You're not working for men. You want to be God pleasers. And listen to this, God will give you the reward. So, so a lot of times as Christians, we, we may say we should never say, well, I'm not going to work this hard because I only make this much. So you would never say that if you believe God was the one giving you the promotion. You would never say that if God was your boss. So this changes everything, right? Andy Crouch <coughs> said in his book, Culture Making, again, we're taking the raw ingredients and we're making something of this world. He said, I wonder what we Christians are known for in the world, outside our churches. Why aren't we known as cultivators, people who tend and nourish what is best in human culture, who do the hard and painstaking work to preserve the best of what people before us have done? Now, this all sounds wonderful on Sunday, doesn't it? The problem is on Monday, we're stuck, right? We, uh, we go to jobs we don't like. We don't make the pay we think we should make. We have bosses we don't like. We work with colleagues who are rough. Uh, one naval nuclear captain said, people are frustrated. Most of us are ready to give our all when we start a job. We're usually full of ideas on how to make things better. We eagerly offer our whole intellectual capacity. Only be told that's not our job. It's been tried before. We shouldn't rock the boat. Initially, this is viewed with skepticism. Our suggestions are ignored. We're told to follow instructions. Our work is reduced to following a set of prescriptions our creativity and innovations go unappreciated and are sapped. Eventually, we stop trying and we toe the line. With resignation, we get by. Too often, that's where the story of our life work ends. Even the most promising employees can go through this downward evolutionary spiral. I had a professor in economics my senior year and said, here's what's going to happen to most of 80% of you. You're going to go to work for a major corporation. Um, after two or three years, you're not going to like what you're doing, but you'll never leave because they'll keep paying you. In other words, they'll keep advancing you money even though you're not performing or not being creative, and you will be stuck, and that's how you'll finish your life. A lot of people go through that. Now, one of the dangers of being stuck is thinking that to get unstuck, I need to quit, or I need to do something else, or I need to jump. Sometimes God has for that for you. I'm going to talk about that later. Sometimes you can have a victim mentality. Sometimes it would ruin your own work habits. If you're stuck today, I think you can get unstuck. If you're not stuck, praise God, that's wonderful. But maybe somebody else is stuck, and my bet is you'll get stuck somewhere down the road. Here's what we need to remember. God is good. God promised us the abundant life. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, there's freedom. God wants us to enjoy the 40 or more hours we work in a week, and the way we do that is, again, I shared last week, we got to get into the flow of the Spirit. Jesus talked a lot about the Spirit, the Spirit leading us and guiding us and speaking to us. Uh, the Spirit, as Carlos said, wants to free us of bad habits, addictions, brokenness, destructive thoughts, fear and doubt, which keep us from doing what God has for us. Like I shared in my illustration last week, God wants us to be going downriver. 
where we have 20 minutes of action going through the rapids, and then the rest of the time we're following him, rather than having fear and anxiety guide us as we go up the rapids and we just, you know, kind of put the pedal to the metal and we go nowhere. That's what it means to be stuck. We're still putting energy and time in. We're just not going anywhere. So I want to give you some practical ideas and let God bring out where you are. We can't talk about work without talking about the one thing or the number one thing you need to analyze in your life and it's rest. You may not have considered this. Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. Verse 8 gives us a quirky commandment to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, let me tell you something about the Ten Commandments you may have forgotten or no one ever taught you. They were not given in Israel. When God brought them out of Egypt, before he brought them into the Promised Land at Sinai in the land between is where God delivered these Ten Commandments. And I think God did it that way, number one, so the Jews wouldn't have a monopoly on them. They were for all people. And think about it, 3,000, 4,000 years later, we have them on the wall in the Senate, in the Supreme Court. It used to be in schools before we took them down. It's one of the most profound set of things ever written, and of course, by the finger of God. Uh, also, it would preserve the Jews wherever they would go, and they've been scattered all over the world, and yet they've kept their identity and then I don't think God ever wanted a shrine built around this. I think these were laws to live out. The fourth commandment is odd. It really is, right? Uh, keep holy the Sabbath day. That means to remember it. They knew that was the seventh day. Uh, when other nations would look at the Jews, uh, they knew about their dietary laws. That was strange. And then they had another strange thing, what they called a lazy day, a day where you do no work. It made no sense to other cultures who were trying to survive. God begins the Ten Commandments by saying, remember, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, the house of bondage. Anybody remember their occupation in Egypt? Slaves, right? Worked seven days for Pharaoh. He was a grinder. God knew that when push came to shove, they would revert to that slave mentality. So God gave them this thing called the Sabbath day, which has come all the way down to our culture and every culture. By the way, it's why you get a weekend. Uh, in Israel today, it's so funny when we're on tour, everybody's going to work on Sunday, right? We're thinking, oh my gosh, didn't the whole world catch on to a weekend? The reason you and I get a weekend is because the Sabbath was on Saturday, and then the Christians adopted Sunday, and we got two days out of the deal. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Dennis Prager said, the world would be a better place, and people of every background would enjoy a higher quality of life if the Shabbat were widely observed. Ask any Chick-fil-A employee, and they'll tell you it's true. When we get stuck, we blame bosses, we blame colleagues, we think we don't make enough money, we think we gotta move, we gotta, we gotta take things into control. Have you ever considered your work-life balance? We live in a country where we're way out of balance, where 24-7 we're trying to make all kinds of money, we're trying to accumulate, and yet God has this thing where he talks about rest. Now, um, this is the only commandment where God tells us why. Have your parents tell you something, and you're like, why? And they're like, none of your business. I just told you, right? Like, you can't go out after dinner. Why? I don't have to tell you. I'm your dad. Forget it. Well, this is the one commandment where God does tell us why. He tells us, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Verse 9, here's why. Six days you shall labor. That's actually a commandment. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. It's not only you, it's your son, your daughter, 
Your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, your stranger who is within your gates. Here's why. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. That knocks out evolution. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and he hallowed it. Now there's, there's several things going on here we need to look at. Number one, God was creating a rhythm for you and me. Obviously, God wasn't tired. God didn't need to rest. He was creating a rhythm of work-life balance. Now, one of the things God created, I believe, to put in our vernacular is a finish line. It took me years to figure this one out. For years, I had no finish line. I was a seven-day-a-week man, right? I worked at my corporate job Monday through Friday. I studied all day Saturday. I had church on Sunday and started all over again for way too long for me. And uh, I realized somewhere 10 years ago, everybody needs a finish line. Finish line means I leave, I go, and I get into rest mode. Now, once I figured that out, a devilish device came along called the iPhone, which uh, made that really hard. Because now I can look at email and text, and I can text other people, and I've got to be careful all of all that. When we look at rest, we got to look at ways to have self-control in our culture so that we can truly rest. And I'm going to talk about what rest is in a few minutes. Rest is not killing it on the weekend and uh, living for the weekend and doing crazy stuff on the weekend. That's not what rest is. The Sabbath was somewhat like the tithe. The tithe is when I take money God has given to me and I give to him, even though I can do things with that money, I'm trusting God will resupply and I can see his hand in my life financially. The Sabbath is the same principle. I can do so much more with the day, but I give it to God, believing he'll give it back to me. Believe it or not, it's a point of trust. Can I trust God with my business? Can I trust God with my time? Can I trust God? Or is it all on me? The Sabbath is a great proof of that. Um, the finish line for me was very important. Uh, my finish line is somewhere around 6 o'clock Sunday night. And uh, not only did the iPhone get me, but some of my family members used to get me, or friends, where they would talk about church on Sunday or Monday, and they would talk about what we weren't doing right, and I would all get all fired up like I had to fix it. And now I live like, okay, um, if something's wrong, we're not doing something well, it can last till Tuesday. The world's not going to end. But I need a finish line. Now, obviously, uh, Look, we had three people die over Christmas. Things don't stop here, and there's sometimes you have to do something. But generally, you need a finish line. The other thing you need is satisfaction of a job well done. What did God say on every single day of his creation? It was good. We need to look back and see what we have done is good. We need to draw satisfaction from what we do. And then we truly have to rest. We have to fill our buckets by doing things that we enjoy and really making that a day where we can recreate and let God speak to us and let creativity flow because we have done a job that God had for us and now we can refresh. So the question you have to answer is, do you have satisfaction of a job well done? Can you see meaning in your work? Do you have a finish line? And are you truly resting from your labor so that you can trust with God. So one reason you might be stuck is this whole balancing act of work and rest, and there's a lot of books on this, and it might take you a long time to figure out the Sabbath, but you need to get your own rhythms. The second reason people get stuck is because I don't think they have a proper perspective on work. 
Now, we always have a lot of new Christians around here or people that came from other churches. And so maybe you don't have a biblical idea on work. Maybe you think work is something God doesn't care about. Maybe you think God only cares about evangelism, church things, and when it comes to work, you're just going to take matters in your own hands. But work, again, is a biblical thing. It provides for our shelter and needs. That's a good thing, our families. It gives us satisfaction. Believe it or not, it gives you a schedule or routine, even though you complain about it. Uh, you can't sit on the beach and golf seven days a week, so uh, getting around people and doing things is good. Use your creativity. Every statistic tells us it's healthier for us. Uh, it's why so many people in retirement wind up taking another job, because they lose perspective. But when I'm talking about perspective, please listen. I'm talking about your identity. Your identity is supposed to be rooted in Christ. Every one of you would say it is, but you know where the revelation comes in of where your identity is in? When the rug gets pulled out. Very easy to say your identity is in Christ as long as the paycheck's rolling. The minute that rug gets pulled out, I've seen people change and lose their identity. Because their identity's all wrapped up in a paycheck, all wrapped up in what they do, all wrapped up in their talents and skills, and it's supposed to be in Christ. Tim Keller's written a book called Every Good Endeavor. It's a classic on work. And uh, I proctored Tim's class in the fall for Calvary Campus, and he does this phenomenal piece, and I'll try and drill it down, where he talks about a traditional versus a modern identity. So traditional identity works something like this. For years, here in our country and around the world, uh, people generally did things that brought honor to the family, right? So if your dad was a farmer, you were a farmer, um, the supreme validator of what you did for a living was your family or your society or your culture. So I remember growing up in the Northeast, a highly Catholic area, and oh my gosh, you know, every mom wanted their son to be a doctor or a lawyer, right? We all heard that growing up. And if you had a priest in the family, like if a mom had a priest, that was like, oh my gosh, you were royalty, right? The supreme validator was your family and your culture, like duty, honor, country, joining the military. Then life moved into what's called a modern identity. A lot of pro athletes have this, right? Uh, they'll talk about politics and things outside of sports, and everybody's got to believe them because they said it, right? The supreme validator is they thought it and they said it. Now that's where we are today, basically. So when you hear that, you think, wow, the traditional identity sounds more godly, doesn't it? It's like family, country, culture. Tim Keller argues, no, uh, we really need a gospel identity. In other words, what's God want us to do? As we seek first the kingdom of God and God speaks to us, what is God? God is now the supreme validator, right? It's not what I think. It's not what my parents think. It's where is God leading me? How is he speaking to me? Tim Keller said that our work can be a calling. This is how we can change perspective. If we reimagine it as a mission of service to something beyond myself, beyond a modern identity. Uh, thinking of mainly as a means to myself, if self-fulfillment and self-realization is all my work is, it will slowly crush a person. Slowly crush a person. So I had this wonderful experience in the late 60s, early 70s, a little boy that some of you older heads probably had. I lived in the Northeast in Philadelphia, and my relatives from South Philly would pick me up at the Reading Terminal. 
It was not a market. It was a train station at the time. We would make our pilgrimage over to John Wanamaker's. It's Macy's now. And as a little boy, this was a grand cathedral of retail. You would walk in. There were gold, and uh, it was beautiful. It was like 10 stories. They had an elevator, man. I never forgot. The guy would open that little thing. You go in. He'd take the elevator up and down. And there was a whole floor that was all toys. This is way before Toys R Us and all that. And they had a monorail that would go around the toy section. You know where that monorail is now? In the Please Touch Museum. You know you're old when things that you enjoyed are now in museums. <laughs> then we would go to the seventh floor for dinner, and it was like this amazing experience. So when I became a Christian, I found out that John Wanamaker was a devout Christian. He was actually friends, really good friends, with D.L. Moody, the great evangelist. In 1875, Moody held a series, I never knew this, held a series of meetings in Philadelphia. Drew thousands of people, lasted for weeks. Uh, great seeds of revival went out in Moody's revival. When Moody finished his revival tour some eight months later, he wrote John Wanamaker a letter. He said, I can't get out of my mind and I can't sleep these last few days and nights. I must sit down and write to make you uh, well aware that I'm making one more effort to get you out of the retail business. He thought Wanamaker being in the retail business was not in the will of God. He said, in fact, the devil wants to steal your crown, and if you stay in retail, he'll have succeeded. Wanamaker prayed this through and believed Moody was wrong and stayed in retail and built one of the most successful retailing businesses in the world. Let me tell you some of the things that Wanamaker brought to the world. Browsing without purchase never existed before Wanamaker. Ready-to-wear clothing where you buy small, medium, and large never existed before Wanamaker. Poor people made their own clothes. Rich people had tailors. He made it accessible to everyone, and he was the first one to have a return policy, which we all love and know. By the way, did I tell you he funded all of Moody's revivals and paid for the land where Moody built his seminary, which is there today? became the president of Sunday School Administration, led a businessman's revival in the 1880s, was the president of the YMCA in Philadelphia, and gave to many philanthropic causes, and gave an eight-year-old boy a wonderful Christmas experience. All because Wanamaker knew that God wanted him in business and not in ministry. He had the right perspective. He understood it as a calling, and he gave his best, and he knew he was working for God. Sometimes a perspective can get you unstuck, realizing that God has you on a journey. Here's another thing we need to understand, evangelism. There are people who will never get to this church or any church where you might be the only gospel they see. I share with you that I worked at the Boeing Company for 12 years. This is before computers. I think we have like two mainframes somewhere in our vicinity, no cubicles. There's like 50 desks butted together, which by the way, if you've been to WeWork, everybody's going back to that. We had free access to talk about a lot of things, and for 12 years, people could read my life. And um, sometimes we are evangelism. Now, you don't spend all day talking about Jesus. You spend all day doing your work. But at the end of the day, God may have you somewhere uh, to be evangelistic. Now, as you go through these steps, and you look at being unstuck, sometimes you go through all the steps and you have a proper rest balance, you have a right perspective, you, you understand you're being, um, you know, a minister and you're paying for your family and, and, and you're checking all the boxes, but there's something in your gut 
or in your spirit that's still wrong, and it's then I think God might have something different for you than what you're doing now, which I'm going to call a jump. I read a book last year called When to Jump, If the Job You Have Isn't the Life You Want by Mike Lewis. Mike Lewis interviews 50 individuals who made internal jumps or external jumps to new careers. He begins with his story where he left Bain Capital at 24 years old. He started at Bain Capital because he thought that's what everybody does, right? I go to college, I get a job, I pay off my student loans, I start a family. But his, his dream was to be a professional squash player. Now I know what some of the ladies are thinking, Pastor Bob, don't go there. It's hard enough with my husband, now he's gonna tell me he's gonna join the PGA Tour and life's gonna be a mess. He won't once I'm done. Uh, let me read you some of the people that made these kind of jumps that Michael Lewis talks about. Jeff Arch went from karate school owner to a Hollywood screenwriter. Teresa Williams went from nurse to doctor. That's pretty cool. Ella Luna went from technology designer to painter. Kelly O'Havra, advertising professional to advocate for sexual assault survivors. Brian Spaley from private equity investor to founder of men's clothing company. Bruce Huber from lawyer to pastor to professor. Maybe I have another jump. Greg Class, garbage collector to furniture design maker. I gotta tell you, I enjoyed reading all these stories. I really did. Because God is so cool. God has endowed people with so many gifts. Here's the takeaway from the book. I'll save you the money and time reading it. No one jumped on a whim. Did everybody hear that? Nobody jumped on a whim. Nobody got sick of their job and said, I'll do something else, okay? Most of them had a plan. Most of them spent time acquiring the skills necessary, and then they finally jumped. Uh, it takes about 10,000 10, hours to gain a skill to do something proficiently. Uh, many of these people uh, did that while they were doing their other job. So when I worked for 12 years in logistics for a Fortune 500 company, I knew I wanted to be a pastor. So I spent all those years, I did my job, and then when I hit that clock at five o'clock, I was a youth pastor, I started four Bible studies, I read every book you read in seminary. Uh, I went on missions trips, I did a host of things that would prepare me for the day I would do this. Go back and read the story of David slaying Goliath. We think it's the greatest upset in history, right? Um, and we think he got lucky, right? Because God was with him, he threw a stone and killed this giant that everybody was afraid of. Uh, none of that's true. Malcolm Gladwell, of all people, wrote a book on David and Goliath, and it's worth reading the first chapter. And he's right. David was a slinger. David could take a smooth stone. This is how he killed lions and bears. And he could sling it 50 yards and hit him right in the nose and kill him. He wasn't out there wrestling lions and bears. He was a slinger. Goliath was this clunky military giant who David was able to get around because he was nimble and sling him with a stone. And of course, God was in it. David was acquiring the skills necessary to do what God wanted him to do when no one was around and no one knew who he was. The takeaway from this book is phenomenal. Michael Lewis says, and this fascinates me, he said, he said, you have to make a plan. You have to never look back once you jump. You have to get yourself, let yourself be lucky. In other words, you know, you're gonna meet some people as you go along and, and, and luck's gonna play a part of this. And then this is what grabbed me. He said, from everybody he interviewed, you have to follow your inner voice. 
Now, I don't think he's a Christian. I don't think a lot of people made this jump were Christians. And a lot of you were thinking, well, that doesn't apply because how could God speak to them? They're not believers. Listen, don't ever say that out loud, okay? God's not far from any one of us, Paul said. How do you think you got into the kingdom? God, it's not like God is absent from human beings till the day they get saved. What the scripture is saying, we don't even have a new nature. We can't hear the voice of God clearly. But I believe people get promptings. I think there's inner drawings of God. And if you overlay this in our Christian experience, this is where the rubber meets the road. There are whispers and promptings of God that you and I have to be trained to follow. Nobody can do it for us. Nobody can write a prescription. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. The entire Christian experience is you following God through the scriptures and the inner voice and then making decisions, whether right and wrong, and then learning how God's leading. I always go through this when I'm going to make a decision. What does the Bible say? Number one. Number two, what do trusted advisors say? Number three, what does past pain and experience tell me? And number four, what is my spirit resonating with? What's God speaking to me? You know what stops most Christians from jumping? You all know. Fear. Fear and comfort. I shared last week, fear is a wonderful guide. It'll stop you from doing wrong things and harming yourself. It is a terrible taskmaster. And it will stop you from every dream God has ever given you. I want to walk you through this exercise. Just answer this in your mind or write it down. What work would you do if money weren't an object? What work would you do if the compensation wasn't necessary? You need to answer that question. So around here we have meetings and off board meetings and people always say, uh, what are we going to do if Bob gets hit with a beer truck? Or what are we going to do if so-and-so gets hit with a beer truck? What that means is, if I die tomorrow, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? This person's such a key player, what are we going to do? Finally, someone said, we can't keep saying beer truck, let's change it to Bible truck. What are we going to do if somebody gets hit with a Bible truck? And then somebody came up with something profound, let's change it to, what if so-and-so hits the lottery? So, the question is, what if Bob hit the lottery tomorrow? And I said, God, that, guys, that's easy, I'd still do this. Because I don't do it for money, it's way too hard, I can make money another way far easier. Thank you. <laughs> but what would you do if you hit the lottery? What would you do? Second question you need to answer is, what would you do if you weren't afraid of the results? What would you do if you weren't afraid of the results? Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, just bought a $250 million yacht with two helipads. Why? Why? Why not just get six helipads, ten helipads? I mean, who's he trying to impress at this point? And is he going to take it with him, right? But I love what Jerry said one time. They said, Jerry, you are so successful. Can you tell us why? He said, yeah, but can I first sh show you my legal pad of failures? Can I show you all the jumps I made that didn't work out? What would you do if you knew success wasn't guaranteed? And then the third question my son asked me as we started 2019, Dad, is there anything you're doing that's scaring you? My answer is, what I'm doing right now, this scares me every week. Seriously, are you doing anything where if God doesn't have the safety net, you're in deep, deep trouble? It's a great question. It really is. 
The older you get, you get more confident, you get set in your ways, everything's comfortable. What would you do? Or is there anything that you do that scares you? Now, one thing we have to talk about when we talk about jumping is this, and we've got to nail it down. I believe God wants us to do something that while we're doing it, we feel his presence. We feel it lines up with our gifting. We feel like it's what we were called to do or made to do or however you want to frame it. What happens if you do something and you feel God's in it? What happens if you do something and you know that you're using your gifts? What if you know that you love what you do and you just can't make money at it? It's called a hobby. It's called a hobby. Hobbies are wonderful. Wonderful diversions. Everybody should have a hobby. Everybody should have several hobbies. Things they work at, just don't get paid for it. There's also volunteerism. It's fantastic. I know a very wealthy business owner every Sunday night goes to a nursing home because that's what he enjoys. It's what God called him to do. I've been pushing Scott Harrison's book, uh, Thirst. It's about charity water, and we've got like 40 new copies in. It's the most inspirational book I've read in five years. You know one of the reasons I love the, the book so much? There's a section where people are coming to Scott Harrison's New York apartment after their day jobs to work for Charity Water. They're learning HTML and Final Cut Pro and design and business things after they've already worked on Wall Street, the fashion industry, and other places. Why? Because the cause was so great. They just resonated with getting clean water to people that don't have it, IJM, International Justice Mission, the same thing, human trafficking, people would work side jobs just so they could get into the game. This past Friday, I had several guys at my home. We were kind of going through a team building, brainstorming thing about the new year. And after everybody left, Pastor Bob Banks shared with me that it was the 20th anniversary of him coming to Calvary. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Bob, I remember the first day and we start lamenting and thinking about all that he had done. And here's what's cool. Bob was very successful with the Sunoco company. He was a vice president. Came to us at 58, uh, said, uh, I'd like to do something to church. I said, what are you good at? He goes, well, I like marriage studies. So he started a marriage study. Then 9-11 happened. He led five trips to New York. Then he led eight trips to Kenya. Then he went to Nepal. Then he oversaw home groups. Then he oversaw building this building. And I've watched God give Bob a brand new career at 59 years old, and he's probably had more fruit in this second career than his first career. He's worked 40 to 50 hours a week, he's never been paid, and he's probably had more influence in the lives of all the people that have come here than anybody I've ever known, and we would not be on this property. I swear we would not be here without Bob Banks. Michael Lewis said, but as the journey around my jump unfolded, what became clear is that the desire to do what is meaningful to oneself and the will to find a way to make it happen was not specific. There's no blueprint. Bartenders, fellow bus passengers, brand marketers, many people I spoke to had something worth jumping for. The ability to jump is not limited to those who have a college degree or a certain size bank account. Applying for an internal promotion at work, going back to school at night, teaching cooking classes on the weekends, big jump or small jump, very many of us have something that we've longed to try doing. A jump is a jump. If you can't do it now, write it down for later. And if you can do it now, go. People have jumped with kids, without kids, with money, without money. 
I try to live by a credo, I don't always succeed, that I rather say I should, that I shouldn't have than I should have, right? In other words, when my kids are all around my deathbed, I'd rather tell funny stories of, remember dad tried to do this and it was a complete failure and everything went wrong, than I should have done this or that. Because you're going to get to the end, and you're going to find out life wasn't as scary as you thought, and you're going to find out God was bigger than you thought, and you're going to play the safety game, you're going to live on a cul-de-sac, and you're going to beat yourself up with regret. Called my dad last night. He goes, did you hear about my pastor? Which I've been to their church many times, Pastor Dave. He's a Calvary guy. I said, no. He goes, he had a heart attack and passed away. I said, oh my gosh, how old was he? He goes, 57. I'm 56. <laughs> 57. That's how quick it can happen. Work is not our identity, but it's a big part of what we do. Jesus called 12 men one day who were fishing. Fishing was a wonderful occupation. Many are called to fish. Nothing wrong with fishing. You do it with other guys. It's beautiful. But God asked these men to make a jump, and he would train them to fish for men. Those men made the jump, and they struggled. They almost went back to fishing. And then for 2,000 years, they've changed the world. Their inspiration is amazing. Charles Sandberg, the CEO of Google, talked about how our great-grandparents lived in the Ukraine. They were Jews. They were persecuted. They saw the handwriting on the wall. They looked around the world. New York City was the only place you could go, and you would still be kind of the victim of racism, but at least the laws were free. So they made the jump to America like many did at that time. Uh, they became garbage collectors and worked in restaurants, etc. One day she was looking out the window of Silicon Valley. Here she is, an author, and making buku bucks, and realized without that jump, she's probably not even alive. Because of the Holocaust, because of the persecution of Jews, her family would have never existed. What I'm trying to get at is your work can go beyond just your providing for your family. There could be a legacy for 100 years, like Wanamaker, like some of these people. You're volunteering like Bob Banks and others. Whatever we do on this property forever and ever will be a part of Bob Banks' legacy. I want to leave you with one final thing. It is not spiritual. I'm getting low on critical email, so I thought I'd read you something secular. <laughs> this is from Peter Drucker. No lie, I'll escort you to my office. I have 15 copies of this. I give them out like it's candy. It's called Managing Oneself. He's the father of all management. Any book you read today, they stole it all from Drucker. He said, history's great achievers, a Napoleon, a Da Vinci, a Mozart, have always managed themselves. That, in large measure, is what makes them great achievers, but they are rare exceptions. So unusual both in their talents and their accomplishments is to be considered outside the boundaries of ordinary human existence. Now, most of us, even those of us with modest endowments, will have to learn to manage ourselves. We'll have to learn to develop ourselves, and we'll have to place ourselves where we can make the greatest contribution and we'll have to stay mentally alert and engaged during a 50-year working life, which means knowing how and when to change, listen, the work that we do. Now here's the takeaway, and you're not going to agree, but let it sink in. Most people think they know what they're good at. They're usually wrong. More often, people know what they're not good at, and even then, more people are wrong than are right. 
And yet a person can perform only from strength. One cannot build performance on weakness, let alone on something one cannot do at all. Throughout history, people had little need to know their strengths. A person was born in a position or a line of work. The peasant's son would be a peasant, the artisan's daughter, uh, an artisan's wife, and so on. But now people have choices. We need to know our strengths and in order to know where we belong. And the only way to discover our strengths is through feedback. Here's the beauty of a church community is I've watched young people look at older people. I watch them get into small groups. I, I've seen people hire people. The beauty is that we live in community and there's people that can speak into our lives. Take advantage of that in this community. Take advantage of it. There's so many gifts and talents here. When I was young and I was in a church and I thought I wanted to be a pastor, I went to my pastor. You know what the advice he gave me? He said, pastor smaller groups of people and then see if anybody acknowledges you have those gifts. So when I was a youth pastor, I led small Bible studies, people would say, you know, I can see you being a pastor one day. Things began to grow. In other words, before I made the jump and before I realized what God had for me, there were people that gave me the feedback I needed. The bottom line is, you can do well spiritually and be miserable at work, but it's not the way God wants you to live. You can be spiritual and in financial debt and make it, but it's not the way God wants you to live. God doesn't want you to live stuck. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to produce fruit. There's something he has for you, and the beauty is you've got to discover it in him. And the Bible has a lot to say about it, so uh, we'll always talk about this stuff because I think it's so important. Again, there's great books out there, there's people you can talk to, there's seminars you can go to, but at the end of the day, God wants you to be unstuck in your work, in all that we do, whatever we do, we do it unto him, because he is the God who has given us all good things. Listen, he gave us the natural resources that we're putting together, he gave us this wonderful infrastructure of America. None of us are self-made, not even Jerry Jones. It all comes from a good God who has given amazing gifts.